For my enemies speak against me. Those who wait to kill me conspire together. Psalm 71, verse 10. All that hate me conspire together against me. Against me do they devise my downfall. Psalm 41, verse 7. Hide me from the conspiracy of the wicked, from the plots of evildoers. Psalm 64, verse 2. They devise crafty schemes against your people. They conspire against your precious ones. Psalm 83, verse 3. Several years ago, I was in the studio with an artist, and we were working on some tracks. Songwriting is this really volatile thing where it's either really working or you're really fighting for it. And this was a really fighting for it night. And Artists are an interesting breed of people because, um, well, they're, they're just melancholy. You just don't know what the day is going to bring. Um, it's fascinating because they're the ones that we look at and, and celebrate and appreciate how they can speak into some of the richer places of what lies. They bring color and context to life. And yet when their lives go sideways, we like examine them under a microscope like they're some kind of new bug. And the truth is they're trying to be normal, but that's not the way they're wired. It just doesn't work that way. And so on this night, and by the way, I know this from personal experience, both internally and in my marriage, I'm married to an artist if you didn't know. So it just works this way where an artist, these are the people that dive down deep into the depths of the human soul and they stay down there too long. (laughs) And they come up and all their brain cells are dead, but they've come up with some treasure that explains something. But usually they're holding on to this pearl going, I don't know, man, is this any good or not? And usually it is. Usually it's like explaining some of the deeper recess of our lives. And they present it to the world, and they're always conflicted, and they're always at war with themselves. And and so this friend of mine says, it's as if the world has conspired against me to keep me from accomplishing everything I've ever set out to do. And I sat with him and I said, it's going to be okay, man. It's it's going to be okay, man, something I've said in every record I've ever made for the last 20 years. It's going to be okay, man. Don't worry. Tomorrow's a new day. It's going to be okay. But I've thought about that a lot in studying this passage of Scripture. Because he was speaking to something a lot deeper Certainly, this was focused at a bad songwriting session and, and, and a bad vocal session, and nothing's working right. But what he was saying runs deep. The undercurrent flows through all of us. The feeling of the world has conspired against me to thwart everything I ever set out to do. 
one of the bands that I liked quite a bit a few years ago sang this song. And in it, the lyrics say, it feels like the only way is the wrong way. Right? Have you ever felt like that before? Like the cards are stacked against you? Like the wind is always in your face and never at your back? Like you're standing at the ocean and the ocean is before you and there's a big wall of mountain behind you and there's nowhere to go. Easy. And it's never that way. Right? Ever felt that way before? I think it's safe to say that this is all of our plight. Welcome to humanity. There's a move afoot in modern in the modern uh, in the modern Christian faith around the world, and it's known as the emergent church. It's this real nebulous thing. A lot of people are talking about, and so we have. Um, can I just move the cross over? here for a second. It's my fault. I told him to put it there, but now I can see everybody. So the emergent church movement has a lot of people, um, especially evangelical leaders, prominent ones saying, ooh, you know, you got to watch out for this. It's dangerous. I don't know whether it's dangerous or not because it's, it's so decentralized that I don't know that anybody really knows what it is. But what I do know and what I am seeing coming from it is a move toward authenticity. So people are now looking for, and especially in the emerging generation, an authentic relationship with Jesus Christ, an authentic relationship with God, and an authentic relationship with each other. So no more posing. That's a good thing. For a couple of generations now, we've had sort of this compartmentalized spirituality. So who you are in church and around your church family is a completely different person than who you are. And... And the church is kind of complicit in this because in order to get into church leadership, you need to look really shiny. And so you got to fake, right? You got to fake it. So this move toward authenticity is a good thing. People are finally saying, you know what? I'm broken, but I do love Jesus. And I'm trying to sort out what that means in detention. I'm trying to struggle through what that looks like and take a step forward every day. But I'm not going to pretend that I'm something that I'm not. This, I think, is healthy and good. But it does leave the question, now, now what? So, so here we are, um, authentically broken and affirming each other in our brokenness. You're broken, we're all broken. Let's be broken together. It leaves the question, okay, now, now what? Because where this could lead is that we're all broken and we're all affirming each other in our brokenness, so let's have a nonstop pity party and be self-absorbed like we always are, right? Let's just be broken together and everything's okay. That, even though authenticity is a move in the right direction, doesn't really speak of the life that Christ seems to offer in Scripture either, right? So, so how do we get there? And, and, and now what? In his play, The Tempest, 
Shakespeare says, misery acquaints a man with strange bedfellows. And indeed, this is true. We find ourselves in all sorts of situations and in cahoots with all sorts of people that we may never have associated with before. This kind of stuff happens in all sorts of governmental arenas. So, for example, when the Russians invaded Afghanistan, it was we who supplied the Taliban and some of the Afghan forces with weaponry to fight off the invaders, only to have them use the same weapons against us now, right? So there was never a a loving, bonded relationship with these people. It's just we were moving in the same direction for a short period of time. Some people would call this conspiracy. In this passage of Luke that we're studying today, we see this sort of situation happening. And it speaks a lot to our posture. So the 13th chapter of Luke, beginning at verse 31. At that time, some Pharisees came to Jesus and said to him, Leave this place and go somewhere else. Herod wants to kill you. This is a fascinating thing for the Pharisees to tell Jesus since they are trying to kill him too. Why are they showing up to Jesus and trying to cozy up to him and warn him that Herod's out for him when they are as well? And Herod probably really wasn't out to kill Jesus because he had Jesus standing before him and he could have said off with his head and he wouldn't do it. He sent him back to Pilate. Right? Herod and the Pharisees were definitely not in love with each other. The Pharisees and the Orthodox Jews would have looked at Herod as a complete sellout, a puppet king. Herod, a secular Jew, Romanized, was put in charge to keep Judea under control. So he would have had to deal with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and the religious elite because they swayed the hearts and minds of the people. But he didn't like them. And he didn't want to have to deal with them. So this passage that we're studying today begins very convoluted from the get-go. And so often we find ourselves in the same sort of position. We're constantly receiving and dispensing information. We call it communication. But the way that we do it often has so many nuances to it that what we're telling one person is a little bit different than what we're telling somebody else, depending on what we're trying to communicate. And this happens in marriage. This happens in business. This happens in community. It even happens in church community. And so sooner or later with this information flow, as we're receiving and dispensing information, we come upon a little bit of information that makes us pause and realize, hmm, so-and-so didn't have my back after all. 
hmm, that's not what I told them. Now that this has gone all the way around the block, what's coming back to me isn't what I said at all. Hmm. And it leaves us uneasy. Some would call this politics. So governmental politics is obviously a volatile place. One needs only look at it to understand that. I spent a couple decades in the entertainment business. I can guarantee you that's a volatile place to be. However, now I find myself in church ministry, and I'm a pastor's son, and I know that's a volatile place to be also. We've all kind of come together having experienced some of that in our lives and have agreed as a community, we don't want to do that anymore. That's not what we want to be a part of. It's a big waste of energy. And yet we've all experienced it before. The world has conspired, it seems, against us to keep us from accomplishing everything we'd set out to do. But why? Why? Why does this matter? Why do we find ourselves playing this game in the first place, this nuanced game where we can't just have a yes be yes and a no be no? Why do we do this? And often in business, why do we find ourselves cozying up to a person or a company we'd never associate with in the first place? Why do governments do this? Why do people do this? Usually, when there's anything conspiratorial at all, it's because somebody wants something they can't get any other way. So, somebody has something you want, or they have a relationship with somebody that you want to have a relationship with. You'd never give that person the time of day, but all of a sudden, you're best friends. Guys do this kind of stuff, I'm told. <laughs> right? So, so somebody's friends with the girl you're interested in, and so you become best friends with that person so that you can get next to the girl, right? That's just this, mac this micro look at a very macro thing that's happening all the time. Why do we play these games? Ultimately, we want something we can't get any other way. But you throw that into the pot and turn up the heat and boil things down, what's going to be left is this desire for control. We hate not being in control. And so we'll do just about anything and conspire about just about anything in order to try to have this illusion that we're in control of it. We can't stand to not have control. What's ironic about this kind of behavior, and this is our society, this is how we live. What's ironic about it is, it doesn't lead us to control at all. We entangle ourselves in such a web that when we get this little bit of information that perhaps we've been thrown under the bus somehow, we can't just go back to that person and sort of hash out what might have happened because we're complicit. We've said a bunch of stuff too. So untangling all that and trying to get back to the core of what's going on is almost impossible. What we do is we enslave ourselves. In pursuit of control, we become the slave. And this is 
a story as old as people are. And it never works out right. And yet, we seem hell-bent on keeping, do- keeping on doing it. We end up taking a course that leads down the path of destruction. We end up living a fate we weren't intending to and paying a price that we were never prepared for. I'm going to show a film clip from the Revolutionary War movie called The Patriot. There's a character in this film. His name is Benjamin Martin. And he's fought in in wars before. And he's seen and done things that he deeply regrets, and they haunt him. And so he's come home to South Carolina and taken kind of almost a pacifist role. All he wants is to be left alone to farm and to raise his family. He doesn't want to get into the fray of this new war and this new battle. It's just not his. But his oldest son feels called to fight the fight. And so he goes off to war and is killed. And so Benjamin now feels compelled to jump into the fray because he's lost a son and there has to be a reason for that. And he's got to find some justification for it. The world has conspired against him. He doesn't want to do this. But he feels like he needs to now for the honor of his family. So he enlists, and along with him, his second son enlists. And they go off and begin to fight in the Revolutionary War. Benjamin has no idea that his suffering isn't over. And he ends up losing his second son. And he feels sincerely as if everything has come together to conspire against him, to steal all that he's ever had. bury him. I'll bury him. My wife in Alexandria is with child. My first. I fight for that child. Benjamin, nothing will replace your sons. But if you come with us, you can justify their sacrifice. Why? Why do men feel they can justify death? Is it arrogance? I have long feared that my sins would return to visit me. And the cost is more than I can bear. Benjamin, we have a chance. Green and Dan Morgan are down from Virginia. 
If we win this next battle, victory in the war is within our grasp. Go then. Seek your victory. I'm small issue to it. Uh... You're wrong, Benjamin. You matter to your men and to others as well. Your victories and and your losses are shared by more than you know. Stay with us. Stay the course. I have run my course. Passage today continues. Jesus replied, Go tell that fox, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow. And on the third day, I will reach my goal. In any case, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day. For surely no prophet can die outside Jerusalem. Jerusalem, Jerusalem, you who kill the prophets and stone those who sent you, how often I have longed to gather your children together as a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were not willing. Look, your house is left to you desolate. I tell you, you will not see me again until you say, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Jesus' posture to the world that has conspired against him is one of supreme resolution. And yet, this isn't the kind of stuff that comes from one's own strength. It's not that Jesus is trying to outmaneuver or outwit the Pharisees. It's not that he's trying to get control over them. It's not that he's trying to play the politics with them. In fact, this is what's got him in trouble. He won't play the politics with them. He's flying in the face of it. He's trying to dismantle everything that they're doing to maintain control over other people. And it's got them angry. This is why they're conspiring against him in the first place. So what Jesus is doing in his resolution to continue comes from a completely different place than his own self-serving agenda. He's got a larger story he's living in and a greater mission that he's trying to accomplish. So he says, I will keep on driving out demons and healing people today and tomorrow, and on the third day I will reach my goal. In any case, or even if not, I must press on today and tomorrow and the next day, and then he laments Jerusalem, which the clip we just watched illustrates perfectly. Christ's desire in all of this is to gather Jerusalem together like a mother hen. That's what he would prefer to do. Instead, he's going to resolutely continue down the path toward execution in Jerusalem. Price is costly. It'll cost him his life. 
he says things similar to what Benjamin said in the Garden of Gethsemane. This cup, right? Basically, this is almost too much for me to bear. This isn't about me. This is about your will. But if there's any other possible way, And yet he's resolute. So what's the big idea here of all this conspiracy talk? We live in a fallen world. We have a mortal enemy. The work of Christ is death, resurrection, and ascension gave all authority in heaven and on earth to Jesus. Then Jesus bestowed that authority upon his followers to finish the job. So Christ restored what man could not, righteousness before the Father. He restored man. But man was charged with gardening the planet. Man was charged with stewarding this planet. The dominion was given to mankind, and Christ bestowed his authority upon us and commissioned us to go into all the world, preach the gospel, make disciples, finish the job. So it is true that the world has conspired against us because the evil one is not yet fully banished. We're in this in-between. It is our job to bring the kingdom. So the world has conspired against us to thwart us from accomplishing everything we've ever set out to do. We don't get to set up beachheads for the kingdom without having to contend for it usually. We don't get to get anywhere without having to contend for it usually. The dangerous part of all this is that we realize we have an enemy But so often in the thick of things, when live ammunition is flying, we forget exactly who that enemy is. And so we find ourselves complicit with the enemy seeking control over each other. As long as that can keep happening, we can go on like this for, for centuries and millennia. Because we're not getting anywhere doing that. So, we have to step back. We have to look at the posture of Christ in this. When Jesus got this bit of news that Herod was after him, he didn't freak out. We don't have any scriptures where Christ falls down on the ground in a fetal position and has a nervous breakdown, right? We never see that posture in Jesus. We never see this posture where Jesus is like, oh, he said that? Really? He said that? Well, here's what I'm going to do. We don't have this example in the life of Jesus, and yet we do this kind of stuff ourselves, even in our marriages. We're fighting so often to be the one that gets to be right this time. 
Right? And what does that boil down to? We're trying to get control. The irony is, who cares? Truly, who cares? We're married. We're on the same team. We're actually supposed to be trying to accomplish the same goals. We've committed our lives to the end of our lives together. Who cares who gets to be right? What does it matter? Why do we need control? And doesn't that enslave us? Well, I just won't talk to you for a couple days then till I cool off. So a couple of days of life you can't get back are lost in the process. It's slavery trying to pursue control on our own terms. The only way to freedom is to, is to give up control. Right? And this, per, this is pervasive throughout all of life. It, marriage is one example, but if you look at your life, it's everywhere because it's our culture. So why do we mess with this? It's a distraction from actually doing what Jesus told us to do when he taught us to pray in the Lord's Prayer. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. This is our prayer. How is this going to get done, though? Jesus could have stayed and finished the job. He went to prepare a place for us. He left us here to get the job done. So thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth is certainly our prayer, but we are the body of Christ, right? We're easily... We easy, uh, easily understand that terminology. We say, yeah, we're part of the body of Christ. We're the hands and feet of Jesus. If that's really what we are, then, well, then we should be doing the work of Christ in the world. The, the work of Christ in the world as if he were here doing it should be, be being done through us. So when we mistake ourselves and mistake our brothers and sisters for the enemy, we mistake our spouse for the enemy, we mistake one another for the enemy, we're complicit, conspiring against each other. We're conspiring against thy kingdom come. Not taking the posture of Christ. Benjamin Martin grieves his son, but in the end, in, in his suffering, he realizes there's more at stake than his own personal suffering. What's he going to do now? Go back to the farm with no family left but the young ones? And what's he going to do when he gets there? There is more at stake. And so he reengages in the battle and leads his men to victory. Dear Charlotte, the war has turned. General Cornwallis took flight with his army and moved north. We continued to engage the British, and in the months that followed, Cornwallis entrenched himself at Yorktown, Virginia. George Washington escaped from the north undetected and surrounded Cornwallis, who could not retreat to the seas. It was blocked off by our long-lost friends, who had finally arrived. Vive la France. Vive la liberté.
reach you. You must order the surrender. How could it come to this? An army of rabble. Peasants. Everything will change. Everything has changed. Though he eventually surrendered, Cornwallis himself hid in shame, appointing his subordinate to relinquish his sword. With the war ending and our militia disbanding, I take measure of what we have lost and what we have won. My hope and prayer is that the sacrifices borne by so many will spawn and fulfill the promise of our new nation. Tell the children, and especially Susan, that I will keep my promise, as I will be returning to you all soon. The general says, how could it come to this? An army of rabble and peasants. And isn't this the way God has always worked? Aren't these the ones that he chose to be his apostles? Aren't we the same? And so it is through us that God has entrusted his kingdom on this earth Somehow, some way, he believes we can get it done. And the truth is, against all odds, we can get it done. Because all authority in heaven and on earth has been bestowed upon us to get it done. We just have to stop trying to use that authority against each other for control that enslaves us and surrender to the authority of Christ in our lives. I take measure, Benjamin said, of what we have lost and what we have won. My hope and my prayer is that the sacrifices borne by so many will spawn and fulfill the promise of our new nation. So although this is an American story and an American depiction of our American story, this is still our story. And even we who have espoused now the Anglican tradition, we, we find ourselves in an ancient line of history that contains stories of lives lost to bring us to this day. People who stood and were tied to stakes and set on fire, and as they breathed their last, they passed the hope of the gospel on to the next person and to the next person. People have bled and died to bring us our freedom and our spiritual freedom. And we find ourselves in that long line and in that tradition. So now, we who breathe are stewarding the faith. And if we're not careful... We're going to pass the baton off and give the faith to the next generation in worse condition than when we got it. And that would be a very, very sad thing to do. But it is within our power to change that. Now, is this little group going to change the whole world? I don't know. Maybe some of you will. 
but we can steward Spring Hill, right? I mean, we can get our, our heads around where we live. We can do our part to bring the kingdom here. And can we bring the kingdom to Spring Hill all by ourselves? I don't think so. But each of us has a world that we live in. And it's our responsibility to steward that world. And if we're all doing our part, well, there's enough believers on earth today that the world would change. The job could actually get done. We've just gotten confused about who we're fighting. And so may we consider that this week. How are we conspiring with the enemy? And how can we change that? So Jesus, we invite you to come into this next part of our our service as we come around the Lord's table. We take this moment in this second week of Lent to pause and reflect deeply and repent. This is the season of repentance. And so we consider the things that we've discussed today because the reality is we're all guilty. So we are sorry. We invite you, Holy Spirit, to come. Lead us into all truth. Lead us deeper into Jesus. And in this time around your table, Holy Spirit, we invite you to come and fill us once again. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.